I'd like to introduce to you tonight Commander Graham Thompson, who's going to give us uh, a talk about aircraft carriers, past, present and future. Commander Thompson joined the Navy in 1942 as a Dartmouth cadet and served in HMS Ajax as a midshipman in 1950. He started flying training in 1950, joined attacker squadron at Ford, became a flying instructor on meteors and vampires, based at Malta during the Suez Crisis. Uh, he served in 804 squadron on Seahawks, was senior pilot in 806 squadron, also on Seahawks. Uh, he was Flag Lieutenant to Flag Officer Naval Flying Training, promoted to Lieutenant Commander and made CO of 807 Squadron Scimitars, promoted to Commander 1963 and given command of Diesel Frigate HMS Chichester for 15 months. Commander Air Royal Naval Air Station Broadie, Wales. Commander Air HMS Hermes up to 15 months ago and uh, Commander Thompson is now on the staff of Director General Aircraft Navy. That is the material provider providers to the Navy equipment. Uh, Commander Thompson is married with two children and I'm sure we're all going to look forward to a very interesting talk on the subject which quite near to us because until only a few years ago uh, we in Weybridge and the Vickers part of certainly of BAC quite a lot to do with naval aircraft and had some quite close associations with carriers and uh, the chaps that uh, looked after them, the aircraft I'll ask you if you'd uh, give us your talk Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, perhaps my lecture is not just to introduce you to aircraft carriers, indeed it's slightly wider than that, it's to introduce you to the fleet arm, past, present and future. And I may say, this is apparent too, I had to rewrite most of the lecture uh, to allow for the revised future of the last week. Now, in doing this, I'm going to divide my talk into four parts. Uh, first, I think the historical background then the present, then the immediate future, and then a brief look into the implications of the more distant future. I make no apologies for spending time on history. I think it's interesting for one thing, and I think for another, it holds many lessons for us today, and will do in the future. However, despite this troubled past, we managed to fashion a fleet arm, which now, I'm absolutely sure, is still the most professional, and I believe the most highly motivated, and for its size, I think the most effective striking force in the country. Now, those are very grand words, and I hope to be able to prove them to uh, late in my lecture. It's still a large part of our Navy, don't forget that, and in one form or another, as I'm going to show you, it will be with us for a long time yet. To so much the introduction, let's have a look quickly at the history, which is short and eventful. It's easy to forget, perhaps, that it's only 67 years uh, since the Wright brothers made the first successful 
Hard aircraft site at Cool Devil Hill near Kitty Hawk, in North Carolina, as I'm sure members of your society are all well aware. But the sequel to that, or one of the sequels, was in 1907 when the Wrights offered the patent of their flying machine to the Royal Navy, which at that time was by far the biggest navy in the world. And their lordship refused the offer politely, saying, and I quote, that they could see no possible future for the aircraft in naval warfare. However, as is their went, one year later they changed their views, and the appointment of a naval air assistant to the Board of Admiralty saw the start of the Navy's connection with the air. And that was in 1908, and the naval air estimates for that year totaled 35,000. Last year, the fleet air arm cost 60 million. So at least we progressed in the eyes of the Exchequer. Now, at first, the airship seemed to hold the best promise, and the construction of a large one was begun in 1909. It was completed some two years later, and her story was not a happy one. She was built in a fully enclosed hangar, there was a strong crosswind blowing when she was taken out, and the inevitable happened. She was blown into the side of a hangar, she broke her back, and she became a complete writer. She had been christened Mayfly. For a time, the Admiralty lost interest in airships, although, of course, they did make a comeback to do useful work during the First World War on anti-submarine patrols, and in World War II in the United States Navy, they played a great part. And we still have the blueprints in the Ministry of Defense of the original airship, just in case. By 1911, and uh, largely through private enterprise, five naval officers had been trained as pilots. Now, here's a picture of an early training aide. <coughs> the pupils sat in the seat with the instructor standing down below shouting instructions. And the idea was to make sure that the pupil could coordinate his movements of stick and rudder before he got airborne in a proper aircraft, which, in any case, didn't really look very much different from that one. And you must remember also, of course, that the instructor knew very little more than the pupil. During 1911, things moved fairly quickly. For the first time, a seaplane took off from water and landed back on the water. Another took off from a ship and landed on water. Here is a view of that aircraft on its shipborne platform. Uh, it's Lieutenant Sampson who's flying a modified short S-27. You see, they'd started modifying aeroplanes even in those days. He's flying off from the, just above the turrets of the battleship Africa. But unfortunately, the Royal Navy were not, in fact, the first to accomplish this, because in 1910, Eugene Ely of the United States Navy had taken off from the USS Vernon. He wasn't, in fact, very much ahead of us, but the following year he successfully landed on the USS Pennsylvania whilst at anchor and accomplished something that was not repeated in the RN for six years. Now, meanwhile, the Army, and of course, remember, that was the only other service at the time, had been experimenting in the air, and in order to rationalize the work of the two services, the Royal Flying Corps was formed in 1912, as I'm sure you're all aware, with a naval and a military wing. But the Navy was reluctant to allow the development of aircraft to pass out of his own control, I suspect for parochial rather than for military reasons, and by 1913 the tendency of the naval wing to break away was accepted, 
and resulted in the formation of the Royal Naval Air Service. Then came, of course, the start of World War I, and the Royal Naval Air Service had 52 seaplanes, 39 land planes, and 7 airships, and it was without doubt the best aerial fighting service in the world. Naval aircraft were expected to carry out the uh, following task, and I think you'll notice the defensive tenor of all these tasks. At that time, there was no idea that aircraft could effectively attack ships, despite the fact that a torpedo had been dropped in 1914. But in those days, both the torpedo and the aircraft, of course, were in their infancy. And the Royal Navy was particularly slow to learn this mode of warfare. However, tactics developed, and the air crews became adept at gunnery spotting, bombing, and wireless telegraphy. Here's an observer launching a bomb using the latest bomb type of the day, which is easily called visual sighting manual release technique. <laughs> the uh, large part played by the RNAs in World War I, I think, is not often fully realized. For the first two years, it was responsible for the air defense of Great Britain. It carried out the first air raids on Germany and it flew many anti-submarine patrols. In fact, it was not only the air arm of the fleet, but it was also the fighter, the bomber, and the coastal commands of the day. And one of the most popular and best aircraft at the time was, of course, the Camel. It had a top speed of 100 miles an hour, it climbed to 15,000 feet in 21 minutes. And here is a slide of the Camel on perhaps the earliest flight deck, which consisted of a platform which could be towed astern at speeds of up to 30 knots. They were used to take aircraft closer to the enemy coast. The takeoff run was about five yards, and the landing was back into the sea, from whence it was hoped to recover the pilot, but the aircraft was accepted as a loss. And as we'll realize from this, one small example of flying was already becoming an expensive game. And here's another complete non sequitur of showing that camels are still used on flight decks. <laughs> well, the expansion in the war of the Royal Naval Air Service was quite enormous, but as always in war, it was very wasteful, and indeed untidy in the extreme. And by 1917, there were 46 types of aircraft um, generally in service. Several ships had been converted to seaplane carriers, and this shows you one of the earliest conversions of the Ark Royal. I don't know how much it cost. Her last conversion cost 30 million, as I think you're all aware. This, in fact, is the last but two of the name. The planes had to be loaded at the sea for takeoff, hoisted back on board after each sortie. It was all very slow, and it was all very dangerous in the face of the enemy. Land planes were already becoming the better machines, and they could take off from a platform built onto a turret after this fashion. But they again had to land back ashore. We still were not fully flexible. The need for an aircraft to be able to land on a ship's deck was obvious. And the world's first successful deck landing from a ship underway, if I can make that distinction, was made in August 1917 by a squadron commander Dunning on HMS Furious. The pilot took off from the platform you've just seen. He flew around. He came up the fourth side of the ship, side-slipped across, and as you can see in this picture, his fellow pilots 
acting as the first aircraft to rescue you, pulled him out of the sky. And it was literally that. Later, an improvement, of course, was made by fitting the aircraft with skids and encouraging them to land in wires which were laid fore and aft. The skids slowed them down, the wires kept them straight, and if nothing else stopped them, you'll notice the barrier there, which was the final break. So really, at last, the requirement for naval aviation to be fully flexible had been met, to become self-supporting afloat and independent of airfields ashore. And from 1917 onwards, the development of flying from ships with flat decks followed a fairly logical pattern with the introduction of hooks on aircraft, which caught a thwartship wires and wire barriers for the accident prone. But there were, even so, some pilots that modern technology just could not help. The, the story of the fleet air arm between 1917 and 1937 makes really very really depressing reading. Uh, in 1918, the lack of cooperation between the Army and the Navy and the poor system for the procurement of aircraft within each service caused many serious problems. The remedy chosen was the amalgamation of the two air services into one separate service. And so was born the Royal Air Force. And the Navy lost control of its air component, which at that time was 3,000 aircraft, 126 air stations, and 67,000 officers and men. For the next few years, then, the fleet air arm of the Royal Air Force, as we were so designated, suffered from apathy and neglect. RAF pilots considered service at sea in an aircraft carrier a drudgery to be got through as quickly as possible, and frankly, who can blame them? because one of the many disadvantages they suffered was the loss of pay whilst embarked with the rather uncouth sailors. Even so, there's one, more than one air marshal that I know of who's got a watch-keeping certificate. Few naval officers were allowed to specialise in aviation, and those that did were treated with suspicion. Perhaps the most uh, the dominant one that springs to mind is, is the Admiral of the Fleet's Casper John, who was one of these heroes who carried on the art of dark blue flying during the difficult periods. The supply of aircraft, of course, was in the hands of the Royal Air Force, and I think here I must refute the popular myth that because of this fact, aircraft specially designed for naval operations were not built. They were, but the staff requirements uh, were laid down by the RAF, of course, and they didn't meet the tactical needs of the fleet. For example, uh, the Sopwith Cuckoo, a torpedo bomber, uh, built in 1919, a single-seater, was designed specifically to deck land. It had a radius of action of 40 miles, which was just over twice the range of the big guns of the fleet. And its successor in 1924, the Blackburn Dart, which carried out the first night deck landing in the world, had a radius of action of 50 miles. That was progress. Uh, one plane, the Ferry 3F, which was in frontline service from 1929 to 1935, I beg your pardon, from 1925 to 1935, had exactly the same performance as the Camel of 1915. And this aircraft, which flew from carriers such as Argus and Courageous, as we have here. But you can see that at least the ship has been adapted to its role 
all there, uh, there were several coroners, amongst the more senior members of the Royal Corps of Naval Constructors, when they were told to offset the bridge to one side. But we were making progress. But even so, even so, the, the general feeling in the services and in the country as a whole towards naval aviation was such that in 1930, the editor of Jane's considered that Argus and Courageous would be the last big carriers to be built. Now, the number of aircraft, land-borne and sea-borne, in service in 1933 is revealing. We come fairly low down on the league, as you can see, and this at a time when the Royal Navy was still the largest in the world. Then, after 19 years of bitter and, I think, very unnecessary inter-service quarreling, the Admiralty gained this was by terms of the Inskip Award, and by its terms, the Navy was allowed to procure its own aircraft and to have its own airfields to support these aircraft. But the Royal Air Force retained control of the Coastal Command, the basic flying training, and all air operations which were carried out from shore bases, as indeed they still do today. Then, between 1937 and 1939, considerable strides were made, with, of course, the imminence of the Second World War. The two years were not, I think, sufficient to repair 20 years of, of neglect. And we entered World War II with 232 carrier-borne aircraft and just over 700 aircraft. There were seven carriers, but only one of these, the Hermes, not the present Hermes, but the one before, had been designed specifically for operating aircraft. All the others were conversions and were old and decrepit, and the aircraft, for the most part, were inadequate to the tasks they were called upon to perform. Perhaps a classic example of this is the sawfish, I think a very familiar one to you, the old string bag who occupies in the annals of naval flying the same sort of niche as this Spitfire does with the RAF although um, I think probably with more decorum as befits an old lady whose attacking speed when dropping torpedoes against modern battleships was in the region of 95 miles an hour. But despite the troubles, however, the fleet arm distinguished itself in such actions as Taranto, which altered the balance of sea power in the Mediterranean with the swordfish, the sinking of the Bismarck, and towards the end of the war, of course, in the Pacific. A lesser known, perhaps, is the fact that the Fleet Arm had pilots in the Battle of Britain and in all the major aircraft, in the more the uh, major landings, and also on the CAM ships, those ships which are redolent of the First World War, where you fired your aircraft off and hoped to get the pilots back. The war at sea, I think, was a, in the Pacific, was certainly a classic in its way, because it was the first and perhaps the last time that major fleet actions took place with aircraft as the main armament. And it was then that the U.S. Navy, uh, consolidated its already very formidable carrier force. In the Royal Navy, we finished the war with excellent carriers, some effective aircraft, and an air arm that had become a sizable and, I think, more or less accepted part of the Navy. Accepted, perhaps, on substance, but still accepted. But then, inevitably, became, became the backlash, and the period immediately after World War II saw a very big rundown in the fleet arm with the return to civilian life of the volunteer air arm and the ground crews who had formed 97% of its strength and added so much that was good to the naval history. 
In the following years, the Peter meandered on. Recruiting for aircrew duties was difficult, carrier operating techniques stagnated, and the design of carrier-borne aircraft lagged well behind that of their shore-based counterparts. And uh, this spur then, I think, came with the Korean War. The full value of a flexible force, which could provide air defense, interdiction, and close support for the army on unpredictable occasions in distant parts, became immediately apparent. And almost every peacekeeping operation since the war has not, I suggest, been predicted. Then from about this time, which is 1953 or so, began what might be considered the modern and brightest period of fleet arm. A period which I think has resulted in today an organization of which all naval aviators are really exceedingly proud. In this period we had many British inventions and innovations which revolutionized, I'm sorry, revolutionized naval aviation. And I think I make no excuse for explaining them to you in some detail. Before going on to the aircraft, um, I want to show you some of the hardware that are used in operating them. And firstly, uh, I would like to show you where they fit into the system. I should have to move down the camera. It is our commanding. <coughs> of an aircraft carrier, seen from the bird's eye view. The catapult, the centerline and landing area, the arrestigar, and the deck part off the angle, which is one of one and a half degrees, your lift at one of each end of the tire of the bed, and your DLTS, or deck landing, projectors. Now, when the aircraft is born from the ship, a catapult, it's recovered back on board by means of the hook which catches in the arrestigar. I'm telling you this in some detail, I'm sure many of you are aware of this hand. The pilot ensures that he flies down the correct uh, approach path by using the deck landing projector side. And finally, when he's on the deck, he gets out of the way of the aircraft landing behind him by taxing off the angle deck on the parking area. This is a view of the steam catapult. Which is merely a pair of pistons, I'm only showing one here. It's a pair of pistons which slide down the cylinder under the impetus of the steam pressure. And they're joined together by a crosshead to which is attached the strop and the aircraft. The flexible ceiling strip which runs down the length of each cylinder stops the steam escaping. Shows there, and it shows there, at that point, and at that point there. And as you can see, as the piston goes down the cylinder, your seal is in position. The piston comes up to the seal. It is then pushed. The seal is pushed up by this part of the piston. And as the piston passes down, it is then pressed into position again, the seal is pressed into position by that little bit of the piston. And you have a very effective steam type joint. The hole is stopped 
by a retardation system at the end. This probe is driven into a small cylinder which is open-ended at one end and has a water flow such that it is to all effects. Hence, it is a solid wall of water and needs to stay the whole of this structure. <coughs> it's extremely securely built into the, uh, into the ship's hull. I've seen one occasion when not this, but the previous style catapult uh, didn't break, it went on going on, and the aircraft travelled off, pursued by something like 120 thousands of wire and down to achieve the left land. Um, your boiler, of course, is the one which provides you with the steam, and as your uh, pressure drops, so water here flashes off, produces more steam, and gives you the necessary smooth run. The deck-handling projector site shows how the, shows the pilot whether he's approaching the deck at the right angle of the descent on the glide path, <coughs> or whether he's high or low. The pilot can only see one of these daytime lights at any given time, but he can always see, as far as somebody clear to, the <coughs> green horizon lights. And he can see whether he is high relative to the glide path by means of the dating light being above the horizon lights, whether he is correct, or whether he is low, in which case he will see the red light. If he is high, he will overshoot the wires obviously, I think, and have to go around again. If he is correct, he will approach the deck at the correct angle and pick up the rest of the air. <coughs> and if he's low, he'll end up in the animal's cabin path with a considerable amount of loss of seniority. <laughs> the site is adjustable, of course, for a big part of stabilized to ship pitch. It's adjustable for the angle of glide, which I'll show you in a moment, and for the hook to high adjustments, which are necessary because if you have two aircraft landing and different as we have here, the phantom in the front and the gannet behind, you can see that if the gannet flew down the path of the phantom, his hook would be somewhere up here and would miss all the wires and would certainly miss the target wire. Therefore, in the case of the gannet, <coughs> we have to lower the whole site to make provision for that. And we have to alter the site to make provision for the other aircraft, such as the Buccaneer and the Cevix. One further alteration we can make to the site is to alter the actual glide path, such that we can bring aircraft down onto whichever target wire we require. This has its uses when the ship is pitching heavily, and instead of bringing them down onto the uh, right stern, where they movement is considerable, you can alter your glide angle and bring him down onto this wire here, which is perhaps some 300 feet further up the deck. Last bit of equipment that I want to bring to your attention is the DA2 direct acting arrestor here, which is at the moment fitted in, in our drawer. And that is in it a simple form of gear, really, you have your arresting gear wire, which leads down 
into a piston, attached to a piston, I'm sorry, uh, which is in a cylinder. The inner cylinder is filled with water and it has holes of decreasing diameter towards the end. <laughs> in itself, it is inside a, an outer cylinder such that when the aircraft picks up the wire, the piston is somewhere at this end, it then pulls the piston down the inner cylinder and water is expelled from the inner cylinder out through the holes into the outer one. And because of the reduction in size of the holes, you get a cushioning effect. So the ultimate G for the pilot is something in the region of four, four and a half. And then the whole system is reset, pulled back again by means of a hydraulically operated multiple sheet pulling. Now all these things, which I spent some time with, are British inventions. They've all been taken up by the Americans, and uh, nonetheless, they are things which have made uh, modern operation of aircraft from carriers possible. I think without the uh, <coughs> steam catapult, you could not have aircraft of weights and sizes you have now. Without your arrested gear, you couldn't have aircraft. You couldn't bring in aircraft of the weights you have now. The deck landing projector site is, a, ne is a, a very necessary thing. And because simply the batsman, who was the forerunner of the site, being a human being, was just not reacting fast enough. Now, this particular slide shows you a working view of the angled deck, seen, I think, in this case from the nose wheel of a vixen on HMS Victorious. On the left-hand side, you can see the deck landing projector side. Now, before this very simple conception of offsetting to one side the landing area and then taxing off into the parking area, we had the straight deck, which meant that every aircraft which had to, which had just landed, uh, had to be protected from an aircraft about to land by means of a barrier. So that if it missed the wire, as it sometimes did, it would end up like this, and not in the deck part. Now I think the ejection seat is too well known for me to have to elaborate on it. That is just after launch, on the end of a catapult. Suffice to say that by use of uh, either compressed air or rockets, it can now free a pilot from an aircraft from almost any condition of speed and height, including 30 feet below the water. And that, again, is a British invention, as you're all well aware. Now, at the same time, aircraft design and strength considerations developed in such a way that performance penalties suffered up to now by carrier-based aircraft, vis-à-vis land-based contemporaries, uh, were no longer relevant. And this meant, of course, that aircraft of the highest possible performance could now be designed to operate from carriers. I think probably the Phantom is a good example of this. The aircraft, which when it first entered service, held almost every aviation record, was flying from carriers uh, with the U.S. Navy some years before it was in service with the U.S. Air Force. And then I think, now let us see what these years of endeavor have produced today in the way of aircraft.
the Buckney Out Mark II, which is our frontline strike aircraft. It's got a crew of two who operate an integrated navigation and weapon system, uh, and can be used, of course, for blind or visual bombing. The variety of armament which it carries, I think, is best summed up by the phrase, if it's made, we drop it. And its range is in the transatlantic class. <coughs> that one, of course, as you're aware, has been taken on by the Royal Air Force, who are developing it even further. It's got all the conventional design features, such as area rule, leading edge slots, boundary layer control, or blow to the vulgar, and I think is one of the most well-mannered and comfortable aeroplanes I've ever met under conditions of turbulence and high-speed uh, low-level firing. A rather glamorized photograph of the Sea Vixen, Mark II, with an all-weather interceptor with a crew of two, and a major armament of guided missiles, although it also has a bombing capability. This is, has done good service, but is now on its way out. It's giving way to the Phantom. The next aircraft, this one is your well-known friend, Parcel Gannett, a turboprop machine with a crew of three, one pilot, and two observers who sit in the back. <coughs> You'll notice the big radome underneath. It's not so sleek, and it's certainly not so fast as some of the others. It's altogether a less glamorous conception, perhaps, but its radar can see over 200 miles, and to a force commander, it's his, it's his eyes, and therefore more precious than gold. And, of course, it can also direct attacking aircraft onto an enemy target and detect that bet noir for defences, the low-level intruder. Uh, finally, then, of course, on the fixed-wing side, the Phantom, the successor to the Cedix. This aircraft, as you're all aware, is supreme in its class. It has a worldwide reputation in a multitude of roles. And in the RN, it's not only taking over from the Sea Vixen in the interceptor role, but it is uh, backing up, <coughs> to a formidable degree, the ground attack um, and troop support capabilities of the Buccaneer. It had a relatively smooth passage into naval service, if you can say that of a modern aircraft, and is now a firm favourite at sea in the Ark Royal. Now, I think I would be accused, and rightly of bias, if I didn't at this point introduce what is undoubtedly going to be the mainstream of naval aviation during the next decade or so, which is the helicopter. And I think, in a rather boastful spirit, I'm going to say that we in the RN showed the way to the rest of the world in the use of the helicopter in the anti-submarine and in the, indeed in the commando roles as well. But as with the vacuum cleaner, the U.S. took over the mass production. The rotoving side of the Navy, which started off with helicopters being used as a rescue role during fixed-wing carrier operations, has developed in the last 15 years to the extent that the helicopter is relevant to almost every part of naval tactics. They seek out their submarines with their sonar sets, which they dip into the water, and they hover, listening and making none of the noises of the propeller or the hull by which the enemy submarine can normally detect the presence of a surface ship. They use their radar, which is that bulge just behind the, uh, the cabin, uh, to plot their position and those of the fleet around them, 
And of course, they're entirely self-sufficient. They're by night or in bad weather. They are a, <coughs> a, fl- a, a flying obstrum in their own right. And the wasp, which is carried by nearly all small ships of the frigate class, lands on the deck aft, picks up its homing torpedo, and drops it under the direction of the ship in the vicinity of the submarine and far outside is that ship's own air's weapons. This really is a classic example of the means of detection of the submarine outstripping the means of delivering a weapon, hence the production of the WASP system. And helicopters have a whole force, the commando-carrier concept, uh, centered around their abilities to carry troops from the commando-carrier to a landing ashore, and then to go back and pick up the light guns and the trucks of that force and provide logistic support during the operation. All the major survey and exploration ships, of course, are equipped with these maids of all work. <coughs> the seeking is the latest advance, and it has so much futuristic equipment in it that it has a better facility to control operations than many small ships. I regret to say, despite the fact its equipment, like the Phantom, is largely British, again, like the Phantom, it is of American origin. And then, finally, the carriers. Well, these are electron themselves, just as they're complete floating airfields, with the capacity to inflict major damage. And I'll show you here HMS Eagle and an artist's impression of the one that got away, CVA-01, 55,000 tons of potential white elephant. Because I believe firmly that the day of the giant carrier <coughs> is past. The nuclear giants of the United States Navy, such as the Enterprise and the John F. Kennedy, are, I believe, the end of an illustrious line, and the future will see smaller and more cost-effective ships. And now I'm going to subject you to some home movies. I make no apology for this. They are taken over a period of uh, some ten years. There's no sequence in them, but they just indicate to certain operations from the deck which have a relevance to what I've been saying. So if we could have the eight millimeter, please, yeah. This is the Wessex 5 doing its uh, vertical replenishment. Anything up to a one and a half ton load and 40 of those now from one aeroplane, perhaps, maybe even more. They have obvious uses, not that they are faster than the standard form of replenishment, which we'll see in a moment, but they are less inhibiting on the maneuvering of the ships. And there is a side lift in Hermes going down. And that particular ship, there was always some doubt as to whether it would come up again, because it was slightly temperamental. And the man sitting outside the, <coughs> the cabin is really just a seat fair play. There you see three ships, victorious on the left, a tank in the middle, a figure on the right, having a sucker fuel from the tank. <coughs> now, at the same time, the tanker could be operating with helicopters, vertical replenishment, or it could be handing across, uh, as you'll see in a moment, by Jackson, solid replenishment, as opposed to this, which is fuel oil, which is called liquid replenishment. And another jump to what is the standard mode of replenishment, two ships going along, uh, between 16, 14, 16 knots. I think the film is getting a little slow, but they do move faster than that. You can, in fact, get up to a load a minute on those sort of jack stairs. 
Now we go back to my history to the film now central with the scimitars being boosted, coming up to the steam catapult, being marshaled onto it, being tensioned up into that flight attitude, and then when all is ready, thumbs up, flag down, and away you go. And there goes the bridle. Just a stand over here, you can see the depth last effectively, which for obvious reasons is necessary to stop the uh, path of death, sweating everyone away from behind them. Those JDDs, as they're called, and the area of the cat house turned from Tarakillo's men. Now the other sequence of landing on, and this one I think, yes, he didn't. Had he landed there, and Mr. Wiles, he could have voted quite happily, he wouldn't have hit the other aircraft, he'd have been off the deck. It's like the bird's eye view of Vixen 2 is being boosted from. Hermes. Notice a very little leakage of steam behind when she gets boosted off. There's no uh, seal of the steam catapult is an effective seal. Yes. The button has a gale. Hermes, the button has two. And now a sequence of aircraft landing. Your search and rescue helicopter taking off and positioning himself on the port quarter. That's uh, in a position, you can see Vixens there coming into break. One is jetting fuel, adding to the pollution of the oceans, getting himself down to landing weight. Coming in now, I think this one's not got a hook down. If he hasn't, he's going round. This one has, you can see the hook between the undercarriage. This is slow motion. And here you will see the wire being reset, with the engineer following down behind it to see there's no damage down to it, ready for the next aircraft. The requirements, of course, are very stringent. Quick glance at the bridge there is a flying control position. And we'll see how open this uh, path on the uh, on the um, deck part. That officer was the landing safety officer who talks aircraft down and advises them. A very present help in time of trouble. When he voted. There's a nice curve of pursuit there. He's picked up the wire and picked up the mirror sometime back. He's flying it all the way down the mirror now and slightly off-centre to port, but not badly. The pilot gets no indication or no help for alignment. It's up to him to align himself correctly. He only gets help from the mirror on angle. A rather sedate Janet. That's all, thank you. Uh, I spend a very considerable time gazing into my crystal ball, which is, as always, clouded with red tape and security. But I think let me indicate to you now briefly two possible future trends. Uh, one is obviously in the field of VSOL, with the Harrier concept doing away with the weight, the size, and the cost of the ship's arresting and launching systems. I think it's not enough to dismiss the fixed wing and say that the helicopters will do their job. They won't. Uh, at least not in the foreseeable future, because they haven't got the range, or the speed, or the capacity, or indeed the maneuverability. And the other trend is a rather negative one, I want to refute the idea that every small ship would have a Harrier on its quarter deck. Uh, the dispersion on this basis will lead to economies in money and manpower, which of course are the twin gods at the moment, and that they will still provide the fleet with the organic air power it needs. I don't think I can conceive a more apt example of the theory of dividing and conquer, uh, nor in the long run a more expensive one. In short, I still visualize a ship built for the purpose of aviation, 
Not a big one, but one perhaps which can handle aviation products of the future, which we hope are in your laboratories. I don't think you run cars by keeping them in potting sheds. If you do, the car and its driver will rust away in both efficiency and morale. So therefore, you must build the ship to suit the aircraft. And I'd like to show you a film on the Harrier. It is, I regret to say, from the other firm across the road, but it will give you an idea of the sort of thing we're looking at in the future. To find out how the Harrier responded at sea. I'm not going to be so naive as to tell you how the Harrier operates or how it works. You obviously know that well. The problems at sea were remarkably few. They were not big problems at all. They were ones which can be overcome largely with experience, I think, and perhaps a minor adjustment here or there. The aircraft at that stage is in a rather sensitive position. Uh, one doesn't want to keep it hanging around on the deck, sliding around. The pilot's report on this was really very optimistic. They said one of the nicest things about it was the, what they call the, the many visual cues they had for landing on. They had their bridge, or they had the superstructure of the ship, with which to assess their height and their drift. And once they got over the fact that the airfield itself was doing 20 knots through the water, they found life was really rather quite straightforward. One of our problems, of course, is what those downward-pointing jets do to the flight deck surface. He didn't, I think, was not quite aware of what was happening there. That was one of the, he made a point of that in his report. That picture then showed you one of the other problems, that of pitch of the ship, or even deck movement of any sort. How are you going to overcome that when the aircraft lands and is in that rather sensitive moment just then, where he is liable to slide? <coughs> There's a bit of private advertising. Now if I can run very swiftly through the distant future, I think not in great detail, but just to remind you of the implications of the decision taken by the last government that there had been no attack carrier in the Royal Navy in two years' time. Now, this decision has been reversed, and as you know, Ark Royal is running on to the late 70s. But what happens then? What are the strategic implications, in fact, of denying organic air to your fleet? Well, there would be no means of applying air power outside the range of shore-based aircraft. There would be, in effect, no British close air support or defence for our forces engaged in intervention operations outside the fighter ground attack range of our shore bases, wherever they may be. And the tactical implications for the Navy are also very clear. There would be no warning of the approach, to, uh, no warning to the fleet of the approach of low-flying aircraft outside the range of the ship's radar. And this range can be so short that effectively no warning is given at all. There'd be no means of attacking any enemy surface ship outside the range of the guns of the, of the fleet. And here you must bear in mind, I think, the speed and the guns of the modern Soviet surface ship and their possession of surface-to-surface -surface missiles and the systems that go with it. If you believe that shore-based aircraft or submarines can effectively and economically perform this role, then I think you will be guilty of wishful thinking. There'd be no means of locating or plotting or shadowing any shipping outside the radar range of the fleet, and no means of positively identifying any ship outside visual range unless there were LRMP aircraft around. And there aren't all that many LRMP aircraft, and there are an awful lot of oceans. 
but in no means of destroying the enemy aircraft outside the range of the fleet's medium and short-range missiles. And I think of almost more importance in these sensitive days there'd be no means of positively identifying any aircraft approaching the fleet. And consider, I think, here the dilemma of the air defence commander of forces at sea in a period of extreme tension or limited war. There'd be no means of destroying an enemy shadowing aircraft. And again, I'm not sure that you can rely on the shore-based fighter defence of the fleet. The fighter-tanker concept is a very difficult one to sustain, very expensive in aircraft and in pilots. Well, those are some of the tactical limitations that would be imposed by the removal of the aircraft carriers. And you may care to agree with Admiral Gretton when he wrote to give up voluntarily the aircraft carrier would be to yield any power to bring force to bear overseas whenever it is needed. And also to hazard our ability to protect British shipping at sea. And this, he said, would be tantamount to political suicide. Eventually we're going to lose the attack carrier as we know them today. But I think it's exceedingly dangerous to try to disguise the fact that the Navy will lose a very great deal of its effectiveness when they do go, if they're not replaced by a modern successor. Because, I repeat, the helicopter, versatile as it is, is primarily a defensive weapon at sea and cannot replace the punch of a fixed-wing aircraft. And perhaps most of all, it would be most dangerous if we, and if you, through ignorance, lose sight of the impact that air power can make on maritime warfare and on Great Britain's defences. Well, gentlemen, that is the end of my lecture. I spent just over an hour trying to cover, as I say, some six to seven years of, of the fleet hour. And I have, I think probably my lecture will be remembered for its omissions rather than what I put in. It's an impossible task to talk about everything in one hour, I hope at least I've given you perhaps something to think about, to show you something, to show you where we sprang from, what we are at the moment, what your money is going on, and what we hope the future may bring to us. Thank you, sir.
the advance from that will be a Hakov become more noisy, as the successor might well be for Harry, whether that successor may be, will find all the personnel to save themselves will be strapped in them of corset to avoid uh, vibration to the to the liver and the soul of the body. Uh, underneath, of course, the air is underneath the flight um, deck. Will not, I think, be so bad in the case of the Harry success. But the Phantom has presented us with one hell of a problem, not only on the noise aspect, but also on their heat and the jet blast effects that you saw there. The Harry around the catapults as well. When the fan is cocked up for its launch, those plates are water-cooled, and as the water cooling breaks down, you have about 10 seconds to do something wrong quickly, otherwise a bit of a ship melts. Um, this is the sort of problem which we will meet in the Harris successor with the powerful engine, the noise, and the uh, deck cooling. But the Harris, once you're investing more precisely, we have a I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure there's a, a good scope for questions, engineering, shipbuilding types, and aircraft types, and operational. So, who would like to ask first? A long time ago, I believe there were some experiments made on launching seaplanes from submarines. Um, do you think there's any chance in the future that uh, some form of aircraft, perhaps helicopters, might get new submarines, which might become capital ships of Navy in the future? I don't think that the fixed-wing um, Harrier concept stands much chance from the submarine for the reason that the Harrier by itself on one single ship is not a very viable proposition. Um, I don't think, to answer a question more broadly, that the average submarine wants to come up to the surface at all. The future capital ship of the Navy is uh, what some mariners will have believe it's a submarine, I suppose to a certain extent it is. But there joy in life is to be something like a thousand feet off the surface and stay there. The last thing they want to do is to come up and um, launch aeroplanes. Because, of course, there are a multitude of detection devices and they can be given away very quickly. Uh, I don't believe, in fact, knowing also the support problems of a single aeroplane, a single helicopter, that it would become an economic proposition in the time scale we're thinking of, which perhaps you tell us what height landing on the not even meant to use the picture Yes, uh, that, that's a function of, uh, of degrees of pitch, and each aircraft has its own limitation. Um, the Buccaneer is limited to a, a maximum of uh, <coughs> plus or minus two and a half degrees of pitch. Well, the Buccaneer is built like a battery and it's uncatched very strong, but that two and a half degrees of pitch at the center of the pivot of the ship, when you put it, when you extrapolate it to the point where the aircraft lands, uh, is something like 40 or 50 feet of vertical movement. Well, the aircraft is coming down with perhaps 18 foot per second, and the ship is coming up with another 30 feet. Uh, you start thinking of calling a halt about that time. But there are certain well-defined limits which are worked out. How many knots uh, are the Phantoms doing when they touch down at the moment uh, on the deck landing? What uh, speed is they it? They are flying at something in the region of 125. Uh, your ship, 120, 125. Your ship is doing um, 25, 
So, relative to the depth, they are hitting the depth at about 100 knots, all that 110 miles an hour. It's not markedly higher than the aircraft we've been used to, the Buccaneer, the Vixen, and so on. Largely through a question of design, and I say these are the flaps, the slots, the blur devices, and so on. But the rest of the air there could, can accept more, because of the, the, the joy of it, just at the time when they can arrive, so, so did the rest of the air. So if one wanted to increase the landing speed of the family, it's not necessary. If you wanted to, I think there's still a little bit of fat in hand. 